but we never want to just jump right into a passage without understanding at least a little bit of the context. So let's look at that first. First of all, the book of Romans is actually a letter written by Paul the Apostle to the church in Rome. And Paul had wanted to visit this church for a long time, but as he says in chapter one, he hadn't been able to. So he writes him a letter instead. That's how we have the letter of Romans. And in this letter, what Paul does, at least in the first eight chapters, is he lays out his gospel message that he had gone all over the world teaching and preaching. He had gone, by this time in his life, he'd gone all over the world planting churches, and he would go and he would, he would raise up men to lead the church, and he'd spend sometimes one or two years there, and then he'd move on and plant other churches. So he's already done that by the time he writes this letter. And Paul begins the letter to the Romans with bad news. In chapter one, Paul explains that humanity has turned away from God. He says that God has made himself known through creation. So the idea behind that when Paul says that is when a human being looks at creation, so when we see a beautiful sunset or we see a powerful thunderstorm, one of my favorite things in the world, We see a majestic mountain range. The idea is that when we as human beings see that, we should automatically acknowledge and thank our creator. So creation is really a sign pointing to the creator. And so we as human beings should worship him and give him thanks. But Paul says the opposite has happened. Paul says that human beings, he says this, in their pursuit of unrighteousness, They suppress the truth about God. In verse 21, he says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. And again in verse 28, they did not see fit to acknowledge God, if you could imagine that. As a result of this, Paul says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And he then spends the next two chapters building this case, the case that all humanity is guilty of sin and deserves the penalty for their sin, which is an eternity in hell under the wrath of God. Sin is a stubborn, rebellious attitude of the heart in a human being that refuses to acknowledge God or worship him. So humanity is guilty of sin. And Paul when he, when he says this, especially in Romans 1, he lists an entire list of sins. And his point when he does that is not to talk about certain people like we would normally do, certain bad, really bad people. That's not his point. He's talking about everyone. Every human being is born with a rebellious nature that refuses to acknowledge God, that refuses to bow its knee to his leadership. This isn't me talking. This is the Bible What Paul does in the first part of his letter is he makes the case that all human beings, again, are guilty of sin and deserve the penalty for their sin. So unless God intervenes, this is where humanity is headed. But immediately after that, we get all the way to to halfway through chapter 3, the letter shifts. And if you're reading this letter out loud, you literally hear and feel the shift. In chapter 3, verses 21 through 22, Paul says this, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, 
although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, that is the Old Testament talks about it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So what Paul says here is that God intervened. That God has offered humanity a way to be made right with him. And it's through faith in Jesus Christ. A couple of chapters later in Romans 5, 6 through 9, Paul says this. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, that is by his death, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Paul, speaking to believers here, says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So God's solution to humanity's problem is not what you and I would think. And this is what makes Christianity unique among the world's major religions. It's that God does not give humanity a list of rules. He doesn't do that and say, if you keep these rules, you'll be made right with me. God knows that'll never work. We're already guilty. And the problem is not so much all the things that we've done. The problem is who we are. The problem's inside of us. The problem is our heart. And so God's solution is this. God sends his own son, Jesus Christ, to the earth to be born as a human being. That's what we celebrate Christmas, isn't it? We celebrate the birth of our Savior, but his birth is really just the beginning. God sends his son to live a perfect life, to die on a cross in his people's place for his people's sin. And Paul says here that all those who repent and believe this message, trusting Christ as their Savior and bowing their knee to his leadership, these people are made right with God. On the cross, God counted Jesus guilty of his people's sin and the wrath that was directed towards his people was redirected to Jesus Christ. So God's solution is not to follow a bunch of rules, it's to trust in his son. That's what Paul explains in the first seven chapters of the book of Romans. And so that leads us to our passage today. And again, the big idea behind our sermon series is how we belong in God's family. So Paul, in his letter, makes it clear that we belong in God's family, not because of what we've done to get there, but because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus the Son of God, died on the cross in our place for our sins. And as Ben said last week, Jesus paid for our adoption. He paid for it. And so that leads us to our passage, Romans 8. If you will, read with me, verses 12 through 17. God's word says, So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, 
by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So what I want us to do is jump right into the middle of this passage, and then we'll come back and look at the beginning and the end later. So Paul says in verse 15, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. This morning, if we're going to understand what it means to be adopted into God's family, we need to understand a couple of foundational things about God. So let's look at John 17, if you would turn with me. John 17 is often called the the great high priestly prayer of Jesus. In my opinion, it's one of the greatest chapters in the Bible. John 17 is the end of one long scene that starts in chapter 12. And this is the scene of the Last Supper. So the one you've seen in all the paintings by Leonardo da Vinci. Jesus and his disciples, they're together. They celebrate the Jewish Passover. Jesus washes their feet and then he begins to speak to them. He tells them that he's about to leave them. So in just a few hours, Jesus is going to go to the cross to save his people. Then Jesus spends chapters 14 through 16, after delivering this bad news that he's going to leave them, he spends 14 through 16 comforting his disciples. He tells them that he will send his spirit to be with them forever. And we get to John 17 where Jesus begins to pray. So let's read that. We'll look at verses one through five first. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. The first thing that we need to understand about God is that God the Father has always been a father. We see this in verse 5 when Jesus says, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So if we ask the question, what was the father doing before he created the world? The answer that we see in this passage is that he was glorifying his son. He was delighting in his son. He was loving his son. He was finding joy in his son. We need to understand that God the Father has always been a father. This is nothing new for him. This is no new idea or new concept. God didn't become a father a few thousand years ago when he started inviting people into his family. He's always been a father. There's nothing difficult or unnatural about this for him. He's not scrambling around in heaven, reading a bunch of parenting books, trying to figure out how this thing works. 
For all eternity, God the Father has been a loving father to his son. Now, my older brother, Nick, who's actually here this morning, he and his wife, Christy, are pregnant. Mostly Christy is pregnant. (laughs) My brother did play a small part in that. They're having a little girl. They're due in February. And it's been really cool to see my brother getting ready to be a father. He's been reading books, trying to learn what he needs to do, how he needs to love his daughter, what it means to be a father and how important that role is. And why is he doing this? Because he's never been a father. He doesn't know what to do. This is totally a new thing for him. He doesn't know what to do. He's had a dog for nine years. That's practice, but it's not exactly the same with a little girl. And so he's trying to learn, and he'll spend the next few years learning what it means to be a father. But it's different with God the Father. God the Father has always been a father. Fatherhood is at the core of his identity. When God created the universe, it was at that time that he became the ruler and the king of the universe. When God saved his people from their sin, it was at that time that he became their savior. But there's never been a time when God the Father was not a father. This means that the father doesn't just do fatherly things. He is a father. Fatherhood is not a role that he plays. It's not just a front that he's putting on, but it is who he is. Jesus says, glorify me with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. He says that to his father. The father has always been a father. Let's stay in John 17, jump down to verses 20 through 24. Jesus prays, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you've given me, I've given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you've given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. I told you it was one of the greatest chapters in the Bible. Jesus says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So up until this point, Jesus has been praying for this small group of people that are in the room with him, his earthly followers. But in verse 20, he starts praying for an additional group of people, those that would become believers through their word. And so Jesus' earthly followers will soon leave that room. They will go all over the world and share the gospel. This other people who Jesus is now praying for is us. So what does he pray for us? He says that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us. Jesus says, Father, you're in me. I'm in you. 
that's the way it's always been, I pray that they also may be in us. Let me simplify this. Jesus prays that we would be adopted. He prays that we would be adopted into his family. The second foundational thing that we need to understand about God is that God, Father, Son, and Spirit, has always been a family. And Jesus prays that we would be adopted into this family, that we would share in this relationship, that we as human beings would enjoy the relationship that he and his father have always had. This is what it means to be adopted. This is what it means to be a believer. This is what it means to be a Christian. A Christian is someone who now gets to share in the relationship that's always existed between the Father, Son, and Spirit. Jesus has invited us into this. We are a group of people that have been brought into the eternal family of God. That's good. So what does this mean for us practically? For one, it means that we now have access to God the Father. And that's great news for us. Let's say that I wanted to meet with Queen Elizabeth. This lady has been queen of the United Kingdom. I didn't know this. I, I saw this on Wiki, not WikiLeaks, but Wikipedia. <laughs> Until I've been reading too much news. This lady's been the queen of the United Kingdom, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand since 1952. That's a long time. Let's say that I wanted to meet with her. I probably couldn't make that happen, could I? If I tried hard enough and was persistent enough, I might be able to set up a meeting with a high-ranking official who knows the queen, maybe. But I'd never get to actually meet the queen. She's too high up there. I'm not even a citizen of her kingdom. I'm a nobody. But if I'm Charles Philip Arthur George... Prince of Wales, and yes, that's really his name, the oldest son of Queen Elizabeth, a.k.a. Prince Charles, I could pick up my phone right now, press the home button, and say, call mom, and Queen Elizabeth would pick up. I could walk right into Buckingham Palace, no questions asked. I could walk right into the queen's room and say, what up, mama? How you doing? It's your boy, Chuck. Because that's totally how I talk to my mom, right? Why is that? It's because if you're the queen's son, that means you have access to the queen. In the same way, we are the father's children. That means we have access to the father. Anytime we pray, we can be confident that God hears us, that he loves us, that he delights in us. And that he will answer our prayers. Let's look back at our passage in Romans 8. Notice that Paul says in verse 15. That believers have received the spirit of adoption as sons. By whom we cry, Abba, Father. There was once a missionary to Uganda. That visited an orphanage full of babies. He walks into the orphanage, and there were more than 100 babies in this small orphanage. And he had been to many orphanages before, 
So he immediately noticed that something was off about this place. It wasn't the smell or the sight or the condition of the orphanage. It was the sound. In this orphanage, full of over 100 babies, there was complete silence. None of the babies were crying. Now, if you've ever walked into a nursery or a room full of babies, there's usually at least one baby crying, right? If you were to walk over to our nursery right over there, you'd probably hear a baby crying. But the babies in this orphanage weren't crying. The missionary turned to the orphanage worker and asked how it was possible that an orphanage full of babies could be this silent. She replied, after about a week of them being here and crying out for countless hours, they eventually stop when they realize that no one is coming for them. They have no hope of someone coming to their crib, picking them up and comforting them. So they stop crying. When Paul says that we are God's children and we can now cry, Abba, Father, he's literally saying that we can call him Daddy. The word Abba, we don't use it, obviously. It's an affectionate term. It's a term that a little child would use when crying out to their father. So not only do we have access to God, but it's important for us to realize that God loves us. He hears us. We can call out to him, ask him for help, ask him for strength, and when we do that, we know that he hears us. We no longer have to live our lives dominated by fear and anxiety, Paul says. God didn't give us a a spirit of slavery leading back to fear. We have a father who loves us and cares for us. So let me ask you this. When's the last time you cried out to God? When's the last time you asked him for help? If you're anything like me, you tend to think you can figure things out for yourself, that you can handle anything. Even when I'm stressed or anxious or overwhelmed, you can ask my wife, I tend to think, that if I can just get this thing done, this one thing done, or figure this one thing out, that I would be okay. Don't be like me. Ask your father for help. Cry out to him. He loves you, he hears you, and he will help you. Understanding God's identity as a father helps us to understand our identity as his adopted children. And this helps us to live a new kind of life. So let's look at that in verses 12 through 14. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And when he says sons of God, you can say sons and daughters of God. The first thing Paul says here is we are debtors, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. When he says the flesh, he's talking about our sin nature. We're all born with one. He's talking about the sin nature that's always lied to us, 
always hurt us, always broken our hearts. The sin nature that promises us joy time and time again and then never delivers. The one that's made us miserable and depressed. The one who ushers us into a life of selfishness, greed, comparison, discontentment, fear, anxiety, jealousy, and the list goes on and on. Paul says we're no longer under obligation as children of God to obey our sin nature. Why is that? It's because God has given us his spirit. Paul writes this in Galatians 5. The words will be up on the screen. He says in verse 16, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit, the Holy Spirit in you, are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. Before you were a believer, it was just you and the flesh. Now it's you and the Holy Spirit versus the flesh. One of the distinguishing marks of a true believer and a true child of God is that a true believer will fight sin. There is a battle going on in every believer, the battle between us and the Spirit of God and our sin nature. Paul says in verse 13, if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. What does it mean to live according to the flesh? To live according to the flesh is to live under its influence, to live under its leadership, to use your time, money, energy, talents, and skills, not to the glory of God, but to rebel against God. Paul says, if you live this way, you'll die. And when he says die, he's not talking about physical death. Everyone experiences physical death. He's talking about eternal death in hell, suffering under the wrath of God. Paul then says, if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Paul here is talking about sanctification. Sanctification is the process of growth and maturity that a Christian undergoes throughout his or her life. This process starts the moment that we are adopted into God's family. There's sometimes confusion about how sanctification works, though. This usually involves two wrong ways of thinking. The first one is let go and let God. This is the passive approach to sanctification. This, this approach emphasizes God's work in sanctification, but neglects our work. And the second wrong view is the fearful, anxious approach, the approach that focuses on human effort, but neglects the fact that God is at work in us and that God is our Father. Both of these are wrong. So what's the right way to approach sanctification? How do we fight sin And how do we put to death the deeds of the body? If we look at chapter 12 of Romans, Paul begins to get really practical. He says in verses 1 and 2, verses 1 and 2, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, 
by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. He says, do not be, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. He says the same thing a little differently in Ephesians 4, verses 17 through 24. He says, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Jumping down to verse 20. That is not the way you learned Christ, assuming you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. In these two passages, Paul shows us how to live the Christian life and how to fight sin. He says, first of all, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Paul is saying here that we are transformed when our minds are renewed. And our minds are renewed by the spirit of God through the word of God. Paul then says, Assuming you've heard about him, this is Ephesians 4, and you were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, put off your old self and be renewed in the spirit of your minds. There it is again. He says that we need the truth about Jesus, who he is and what he's done. And this empowers us to put off our old self, to fight our sin. And it strengthens us to put on the new self as our minds are renewed. So this means that we fight sin as children of God by the spirit of God through the word of God. And when I say this, I'm not just talking about reading the Bible, although that's good. I'm not just talking about memorizing it. That's good too. I'm talking most importantly about understanding it and believing it. I'm talking about believing promises like Matthew 6, 31 through 33, where Jesus says, Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For unbelievers seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Or like Hebrews 13, 5 through 6, where the writer says, keep your life free from the love of money. So fight sin. And be content with what you have. For he has said, God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. In Philippians 1.6, Paul says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Or even our passage this morning, Romans 8.28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. The list goes on and on. The point is understanding and believing God's word. 
This is how we put to death the deeds of the flesh. And this is how we fight sin. The Holy Spirit works in our lives through his word, helping us to see God rightly and to love him dearly. And this changes us from the inside out and it causes us to live differently. And by the way, there have been some really good books written in the last few years on this topic. A couple of them is Tim Keller's book called Counterfeit Gods. And another is John Piper's Living in the Light, which he came out with last year. And let's look at the last part of our passage, verses 16 and 17. God's word says, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Now, I would love to look at every part of these two verses, but for the sake of time, I'll just point out one thing. Paul says that we will inherit eternal life with God provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Now, he says this while at the same time acknowledging how hard it is to live life as a fallen human being in a fallen world. Our sin nature is constantly tempting us to sin. The world around us is constantly inviting us to sin. We get sad. We lose loved ones. We experience great disappointments. We experience broken relationships. Things usually don't go our way. There's chaos all around us and chaos within us. And so Paul acknowledges these things, but then he says this in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. If you're a child of God, what Paul is saying is there is coming a day when you will see Christ face to face. You'll fully experience the loving relationship that the Father, Son, and Spirit have always enjoyed. So we have this to look forward to. In the meantime, we keep believing. We keep, we keep growing. We keep maturing in Christ. We keep trusting God. We keep believing his word. And we continue to fight sin by the power of the Holy Spirit he's given to us. This morning, I wanna close us out by reading the rest of this chapter. And I do this for a couple reasons. One, in these final verses, Paul really summarizes and concludes the argument that he's been building in the first seven chapters. And two, I think we'll find them very encouraging. And so I'll read these from a different translation, the NLT. One of the most readable translations and one of my favorite. So starting in verse 18, Paul says, yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. For all creation is waiting eagerly for that future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day 
when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory. For we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies that he's promised us. We were given this hope when we were saved. If we already have something, we don't need to hope for it. But if we look forward to something we don't yet have, we must wait patiently and confidently. And the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. For example, we don't know what God wants us to pray for, but the Holy Spirit prays for us with groanings that cannot be expressed in words. And the Father who knows all hearts knows what the Spirit is saying. For the Spirit pleads for us believers in harmony with God's own will. And we know that God causes everything to work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. For God knew his people in advance and he chose them to become like his son so that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And having chosen them, he called them to come to him. And having called them, he gave them right standing with himself. And having given them right standing, he gave them his glory. What shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? No one. For God himself has given us right standing with himself. Who then will condemn us? No one. For Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us, and he is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand, pleading for us. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? As the scriptures say, for your sake, we are killed every day. We are being slaughtered like sheep. No, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. And Paul says, I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And that's God's word. And as believers in Christ, we've been adopted into God's family. Because of this, we've been given a new identity. We have a loving father who cares for us. He's given us his spirit to strengthen us in the fight against sin. 
And one day, he will bring us home to be with him forever. May God help us to trust him. Father, we thank you for your word and how encouraging it is. We thank you for your son, for sending him to die the death that we deserved in our place for our sins so that we could be adopted into your family. Father, help us to know you, to understand and rejoice in this great truth. Help us to be strengthened in our fight against sin. Father, help us. Help us to cry out to you as our Father, knowing that you love us, that you care for us, that we have access to you, and that you hear us. Father, thank you once again for letting us come together and celebrate all that you've done for us. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.